BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today's episode is lovingly brought to you by my friends at Healthy Nest. Visit them at www.healthynesting.com. I'm very excited to talk with Dr. Kathy Hirsch-Pasek, who's a distinguished professor of psychology at Temple University, where she runs the Infant Language Lab. And she's also a Brookings Fellow. She's the recipient of dozens of awards in the field. She's um, really extraordinary. Two of my favorite parenting books are co-authored by Kathy. One is Einstein Never Used Flashcards, and the other is Becoming Brilliant. And I um, highly recommend them. So today's topic is language development. And while I think it's fascinating, I understand that that can seem like a little bit of a yawner of a topic, but not when you hear from Kathy and not when you think about the fact that at birth and even a little bit before birth, babies are primed to learn language. And how you interact with them and what kinds of experiences you have and you engage in can make a difference in their language development by age three. So we know from many studies that there is a massive word gap between advantaged and disadvantaged kids as early as age three. Now, we know that there is anywhere from a four million word word gap to as high as 30 million which was the original study that has since proven controversial and there have been, you know, many changes, but there is nevertheless a word gap and talking is free and learning about how to promote language development is so much easier because it really only requires you, the parent or caregiver and the infant or young child and it doesn't require toys or books or anything you have to pay for. And so unlike so many other things that are, you know, horrible disparities that are difficult to do something about, language is not one of them. Language is available and our brains are ready for it. So today we're gonna just talk about what you can do and what you're already doing to make sure that your child's language is, you know, expanding and exploding as it should be. And again, without unnecessary pressure and in ways that you're already interacting. And so you might just say, oh, this is what I already do. I'm such a rock star. 
And um, if you need a little bit of help, this will give you just some clues as to how to help your child learn language. And after that, don't forget to stick around for listener questions. Hey guys, I'm Kinsey from the I Love You So Much podcast. On my show, we talk about everything, lifestyle, business, finance, beauty, you name it. My favorite part about the show is the amazing guests that we bring on. We have everyone ranging from like business experts to influencers, CEOs, creative masterminds. It's so much fun. If you guys want to find me on Instagram, it is just at Kinsey Elizabeth. I release new episodes every Thursday, so hope to see you there. The cool thing about what's going on with baby language is that long before they ever say the first words, which generally happens at about 12 months of age, um, they're already listening in. In fact, it's kind of incredible that babies are listening in when they're just fetuses at about uh, seven months in utero. They already are starting to hear. And yes, it's hearing, you know, with a lot of gunk in the background. There's that heartbeat, and then there's the swishing. So what they hear is a little bit muffled. It's kind of like they'd be hearing what you hear under a swimming pool when you play that game and try to talk. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, they're hearing something and they're hearing some patterns so that when they're born, even, they can actually distinguish like the class of languages that you speak from the class of languages that are foreign or weird. So in our case, you know, they would know, well, German and English sound kind of the same, uh, but wow, what's that Chinese thing? And isn't that amazing that babies oh, wow. are here tuned in? And, and early on, they also start, you know, at, at three months around, they start cooing. And when they start cooing, you can have a conversation with them. I know that sounds ridiculous to think about having a conversation with an eight or 10 week old baby. But believe it or not, if you listen carefully, and I'm happy if you want to post on a website, I'm happy to send you a video that shows this. I would love it. We'll put it in the show notes. There you go. You go, cool. And they go, cow. You go, oh, do you want to cool? And they come back with, cool. And it's perfectly timed, like a perfect conversation. So they're already starting to communicate with us. And they look intently in your eyes when they do this. So again, they're starting to get the rhythms and they're starting to get that power of communication, of connection, which is, which is really what it's all about. And then... What you find out is that babies are tuning into the melodies of speech and they're tuned into those melodies of speech around six months of age, sometimes even before. And when they hear that melody line, they can use that melody line to actually segment the language in ways that allows them to start to find sentences from non-sentences. I mean, really? That is so extraordinary. It's incredible. (laughs) And, and then they find at nine months of age, they're able to find these pieces of the sentences, like the noun phrase and the verb phrase, because it's all packaged acoustically. And then by 10 months of age, they're kind of like getting ready to really figure out these word things. And they even understand about 10 words. Now, even at six months, there's some research out there that says they understand the difference in mommy 
and daddy and can actually match where the mommy goes and where the daddy goes. So you may think that they're not listening in, but they really, really are. And then at 12 months around, sometimes for some babies at 10 months, um, sometimes for some kids who've had a lot of ear infections, much later, right. don't freak out. Um, these kids, they have that, that magical, marvelous mystery of the first words. And often they put it together with a grunt and a point, and they become very demanding and rather communicative. So on that little demanding, grunting, pointing child, mm -hmm. a word can be an approximation of the word if it means the same thing and you're gesturing to it. And do we learn language from that, you know, when they're demanding to know what something is, letting them know that we saw it? Oh, sure. I mean, the very best thing you can do uh, for baby language is tune in to where they're tuned in and comment on it. Now we have fancy terms for it, joint attention. Right, right. Or joint intention. But if we put those aside for a moment, it's really about developing a relationship and having a conversation. Now that sounds so trite, but the human species has evolved to make a lot out of those core conversations and the relationships you build at that time. So have the conversation and build on it. Now, the babies aren't going to ask you, what's that? What's that? <laughs> Until a good six months later. And again, for some kids, it's going to be even later than that. And for some kids, they're never going to say, what's that? They're just going to expect to have that conversation. That's okay. There's a lot of variation. It's like there are multiple paths to get to the destination. And you want to go on that path, make it an easy conversation. But remember that babies are much less interested, so are toddlers, by the way, in what you're interested in. But they're very interested in what they are interested in. So if you follow them, that's the way to go. How would a mother know what their child, what their infant or toddler is interested in? Oh my gosh. It is the most obvious thing in the universe, okay? That is, you don't even have to be a mother. You <laughs> can say an undergrad, a 13-year-old, and say, what is my kid interested in? Let's take some examples, okay? Yes. You just went over to uh, the Children's Museum of Manhattan, a <laughs> fabulous museum. It is. And you have paid to go there. So you want to make sure that your kid sees everything in the museum. But your child has stopped at a particular exhibit and doesn't seem to want to lodge beyond. They're lodged, right? Well, maybe they're seeing things we don't see. Mm. And maybe if we go with the flow, it'll be better for us and better for them because we won't be dragging a crying child through the museum. We'll be following their lead. Now, is it possible to redirect them? Oh, you bet. Sometimes they're disappointed because the peas weren't round enough. Let's get real. Mm -hmm. That becomes a real issue when they're two and when they become three. And they can drive you crazy, right, with the disappointments. Um, I, I remember at one point one of my kids said to me, I want a dinosaur cup. 
and oh my God, it was like a federal crime <laughs> that I had gotten the wrong dinosaur cup, you know? Not that one! Okay, let's get the right one. Point is that you will know what they are interested in. And even before they can tell you their grunts, their smiles, etc. Now, they're not always going to get what they're interested in. And they're not always going to get what they want. That happens as much at the ice cream shop, in the dessert aisle, or checking out of a supermarket. But you can redirect them. You can say, oh, oh my gosh, at the Fairview, look what happens. The food seems to be moving along and I'm not touching it. How's that happening? Well, they're not looking at the candy anymore. You've helped them become interested in the belt. So there are ways to trigger. So Kathy, you just used a very appealing voice when you did that. Okay, go for it, yeah. Let's maybe talk about that because there's a difference in how you speak to a toddler or an infant and how we would speak to each other and that makes you more engaged. So what's that? What are those qualities? Sure, well, I must say, um, notice, by the way, that you use it sometimes when you see someone who's elderly, we do the same thing. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you use it when you meet somebody who doesn't speak English as their first language. Totally. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, sometimes you use it with your dog, like all <laughs> the time. So it's, it's not it's not just for little people, but here's what we know. Um, in American English, we go kind of crazy <laughs> with what we call infant-directed speech or motherese in the field. Um, and when you get a little more colloquial, you call it baby talk. Now it's really high pitched and you make your sentences a little bit shorter (laughs) and you exaggerate in them. And if you could pull it apart and actually look at the sound stream, you would see that the vowels are exaggerated and you would see that you elongate at the end of sentences things you don't even notice. Let me just show you an example. If I say, I'm putting the book on the shelf, or I say, on the shelf, I'm putting the book. Now I'm going to slow it down for you. I'm putting the book on the shelf. On the shelf, I'm putting the book. Now, I slowed it down and exaggerated wildly for you, but infant-directed speech does that. And it gives you these real clues, like vowel lengthening that you never thought of in your life before this very moment, (laughs) and allows you to say, oh, sentence ending here. Oh, pay some attention to the vowel. Oh, look at that. There's a question. So by doing that, we know it says to the child, hey, I'm talking to you, and pay attention to some of these signals. And as we grow up, are we able to learn language in, like, could you learn these things without somebody engaging with you? Oh, well, not, not without them engaging, but without them engaging in in that way version of baby talk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the British seem to do it very well (laughs) without going crazy. (laughs) Oh my God, you know, that's so interesting. I've never even thought about that because I spend so much time thinking about parentees. I never even considered the British. I think about other cultures, but you're right. 
Tell me what even you- in English. Yeah, I mean, so it depends. This is this, there are cultural variations, mm-hmm. but there's not a culture out there that we've all found that doesn't modify the language in some way for the for the infant. for the kid. Yeah, so interesting. And by the way, you don't have to be taught to do that. Right. Oh, great point. Even that just three-year-olds, happened. even four-year-olds, they just come out with it naturally when they see a baby. Yes. Yes. That's right. If you just watch a four-year-old talking to a little baby, you'll see this in action. So you don't need to be conscious of it. Exactly. It will just happen. Exactly. But nobody should make fun of you for talking like that. Right. Right. I mean, so you sound a little crazy. Who cares? <laughs> I walk down the street with my dog the way I walk down the street with my kids when they were toddlers, where I talk to my dog about everything that we're seeing and I'm using this sing-song voice and I, I keep waiting for her to learn the words. Yeah, <laughs> it's not well, happening. I'll tell you, well, the dogs know a few words, you know, they're, they're never going to have the machinery that it's <laughs> going to take to pop that into real human language. Yeah. But again, it's about having a relationship, right? Mm-hmm. So talking about that relationship, so building that relationship between you and, and the child builds their language. That's one of the- It, it really does. Um, and it, it's not even one theory, it's the every theory. Let me just give you a sense of how strong the scientific data is. Yes. Um, we, we actually call it having a conversational duet, which is singing together can't happen when you only have one person singing. So the monologue, eh, scrap it. Have a dialogue. Even when our children are very, very young, even that 10-week-old can have a conversation. And it turns out that when we build that conversation and we strive for five, as one of my colleagues says, five turns in the conversation, we're really giving graduated language lessons. And it's au natural. We don't even have to try to do it which is so powerful. And as we have looked longer and longer at what we call these contingent back and forth interactions, we're starting to see that these well-timed following on the meaning of your child are so very important that they're actually building brain structure. And what we're showing our children in the first few years of life lasts all the way up until they're 10 or 12. We can still see those language advantages. And those language advantages actually play out in their later reading skills, their later math skills, and their later social skills. So this is really fundamental, important stuff. And so have a conversation. And that conversation is that that important stuff you're talking about is not as much work as trying to put on a baby Einstein or get the right show or flashcards just to steal from your book title, um, right? So that interaction is the thing. It's not finding these other ways. Now, I wish I could tell you it's so much more complicated and we have to spend mega bucks to go to the store to get all the stuff that's going to make a difference. But the bottom line is, talk about it. Talk about slugs, talk about the cracks in the sidewalk, talk about the cool trees that you see in Central Park. Any of this is powerful, powerful stuff. And these are the seeds from which all language grows. 
What a wonderful thing to just remember right now when people are worried about whether or not they're giving enough stimulation to their kids or are they learning and are they growing and developing as they're staying hopefully home um, quite a bit or walking around near their home. Those are the beautiful opportunities to actually learn language. It really is. And you know, where you don't get it is parked in front of a television and an app. Right. And, And where you don't get it is if parents are so stressed that they're constantly on their cell phones and not acknowledging that the child's there. What our kids need most right now is they need us to at least acknowledge them. It doesn't mean that you don't have to go to your Zoom call and that you can't tell them for a while, please just go in the other room and hang out with your blocks. (laughs) But it does mean that when you're there, you're mindfully there. I mean, who could end on a better point? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's, uh, It's just the way it is. Human nature at work. It's a gorgeous thing. It is a gorgeous thing. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. And it's been a pleasure. There's so many things we could do to get the message out. You know, right now, I think we're all, we're all just at the end of our ropes, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's so nice to hear this, these messages, especially in, you know, manageable bite sizes, because people are furiously trying to come up with ways to be better, stronger, faster. And so when you hear the soothing voice of how beautiful development happens and unfolds in the ways that you're talking about, it allows parents to feel just just enjoy their experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, that's what we lost. I think in in our society today, we've kind of kind of lost how powerful it is to be a parent Mm -hmm. and isn't it a shame that today we almost feel like we have to be ceos of our kids lives instead of enjoying parenting and when we learn that enjoying parenting is going to be the very best thing for our kids it's a game changer and now for listener questions the first question is dear dr aliza do I have to throw out my seven-month-old baby's pacifier? (laughs) Okay, thank you for that very simple and very common question. I'm going to give a controversial answer. I'll give you the right answer, the quote-unquote right answer, based on the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is, you know, you want to dump the pacifier by the first year, and many pediatricians will tell you to get rid of it by six months so that babies don't get too attached to it. Here's my controversial answer. If that pacifier is helping your baby receive comfort that you cannot give because they're in their crib and they're finally sleeping, don't get rid of the pacifier. Who cares? That's really how I feel. Now, what you should get rid of is any habit of using a pacifier after six months during awake times. So if you're sitting with your baby or you're walking around or you're trying to eat a meal and you plug their mouths when they're trying to babble or make sounds or communicate or even yell, then I would say get rid of the pacifier for those times, but leave it in the crib if sleep is just becoming a certainty and your um, child gets comfort from the pacifier because to me, a sleeping baby is a baby that is developing and thriving. So try to just limit it to the crib. And then if your baby wants it 
and is upset outside of the crib, try to help them learn how to soothe without it. Now, babies who have pacifiers or suck their thumbs do have lower cortisol levels. So they know how to self-soothe better than anybody. They've found a way to feel good. So I would not want to take that away. As your baby gets older and, you know, you do want to remember that if you have any speech issues or ear infections, you definitely want to get rid of the pacifier, recurring ear infections. Otherwise, I will get in trouble with the pediatricians. But beyond that, I would say if something's helping your kids sleep and feel soothed and loved, and it's not you having to sleep with them and soothe them and love them during those times, why torture yourself? Why get rid of it? Um, Now, at seven months, it's an interesting time because they're just on the cusp of understanding object permanence and person permanence, which just means that when something goes away, they know it still exists. And so they get separation anxiety, you might notice. When you walk out of a room, gone are the days when you could just walk in and out. Now they're like really upset when you leave. Um, Sometimes that takes up to nine months for a, a baby to understand. But this is that time where it is, you know, easy to take something away and will become harder over time. So I just want to give you that full disclosure. So if you're going to feel like, oh man, why didn't I take the pacifier away? Now I have this one-year-old or this two-year-old and they're so attached to sleeping with the pacifier. What have I done? If you're concerned about that, now is a great time to get rid of it. But if you're comfortable with leaving it to the crib and knowing that there will come a time when you do have to help them get rid of it. And it can be quite a sad and painful moment for them because it's something they've grown really attached to. Then go ahead and keep it as long as you feel comfortable and it helps with sleep. So that's my controversial answer. Hi, Dr. Aliza. I'm looking for any suggestions regarding how to play with my child. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I'm a teacher for older kids. And I know how to spend time with teach, play, and talk with older kids. However, my one-year-old is a different story. I'm struggling with how to play with him and help him learn and grow. Do you have any advice or suggestions or ideas? I feel like a pretty inactive mom. I know it's not true, but it's just how I feel. I love the Montessori way and use it in my home, but just need suggestions on how to interact and play with my son. Thank you for all of your help. Thank you for that question. And I know you're not alone in feeling that way. There are plenty of moms and dads and caregivers who are better with certain ages than they are with others. That is so normal. You know, you could just take a poll with all of your friends. There are people that are like, "Ugh, I could do without the whole baby time and just go right into toddlers. There are people that are like, give me a kid, but don't give me a teenager. There's such a range. So part of that is just where you've developed your skills and where you're, you're new. And part of that is, If you are a teacher, then you have such a highly trained skill at an older age that you're maybe noticing or self-conscious about something that other people wouldn't be self-conscious about. So um, I'm sure that when you're interacting, it's wonderful. But to give you a little bit of a suggestion, I would pull from what Kathy said in the conversation we just had about 
really focusing on talking to and playing with and engaging in the things that your baby is interested in. So if your one-year-old is interested in pulling all the books off of the shelf and looking at them one by one, and you are dead set on having them do a puzzle, don't force the puzzle. Just go right to what your baby is looking at and engage, talk about, and play with those things. So going with like, let's say they're pulling books off the shelf, then you can take the book and you can say, um, you know, cover your face with it and say, where's mommy? Where's mommy? Here I am. And pull the book off your face. So all of a sudden it's turned into a peekaboo game that's really good for their development. And it's really funny for a one-year-old. You can put the book on your head and say, where's my book? Is it on my head? Look, it's on top of my head. Now it's on the floor. Now it's under my foot. And so you can use your child's attention to the books to be playful and teach direction and language. You can offer them, you know, to point to the things that they're interested in. You just want to really play by looking at what your child is interested in and riffing off of that. If you get stuck, again, always look, where's my child looking at? Like, what are their eyes paying attention to? And that's always a good clue that if you just talk about that, pick that object up, shake that object, talk about the different components to that, that you can get a child excited to to listen. And the other thing is sometimes for play, they just, you know, a one-year-old just wants physical play and, you know, something to climb on like a person, or you can pile some pillows up and some Amazon boxes that are clean and um, make a little bit of an obstacle course. So in order to engage your one-year-old, you might need to do some of the things that you want your child to do. But all of those are ways to naturally engage children in play and to know when they're going to be interested. Just look at what they're paying attention to and you just go with that. So try to get rid of any agenda right now because an agenda for your idea of play is what's going to mess with your head when they're not excited and engaged. And the last thing is just please keep in mind, you don't need to play all day or talk to your child all day. That's too much. This is just, you know, some interactions that you're having. And other times it's also okay to sit silently and just experience the quiet and the sounds that you might hear if you're not talking to each other. So I know this can be a difficult time for play when you can't like play a board game or do a puzzle or do something that feels a little bit more comfortable, especially if you're a teacher. But again, if you follow your child's lead, that play is going to be all they need to have a good time. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, maybe write a little review. We're going to be back next week when... Professor Sunia Luther is going to be talking about the research on resilience, in particular as it relates to what's going on right now, in particular as it relates to school-aged and teenage children. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you're all staying safe and healthy.